You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hi, Free City. I'm Casey. I'm one of your pastors. And uh, we're so glad you're here. And we know that you're not actually right here in the room. There's just a small amount of people in the room with us. But I actually pray that you're growing in comfort to step toward uh, one another in some room uh, as we come together just in community. Because our, our mission hasn't changed. Uh, we still exist uh, to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the power of the gospel. And right now, how that looks is we're gathering, we've asked our city groups to gather into small Sunday host homes, to gather back on Sunday under preaching, to come back into community, and to start to get to know one another. Now, we realize that more groups are stepping that way this week, uh, and some groups and some people haven't stepped toward that. And once again, just like last week, we have lots of patience for that. And we have lots of humility for that. And we want you to be encouraged uh, wherever you are to run after God and to use wisdom. And so if this brings up any needs or concerns, we pray that you'll uh, reach out to us. But, you know, ultimately, when we say uh, we exist to extend the glory of God, to make disciples, when it, we say make disciples, it indicates to change. Like making disciples starts from being an unbeliever, no matter how old you are, and transitioning to be a God lover, to someone who loves Jesus, and then moving in the faith as I grow in repentance and courage, and I grow in knowledge, that I'm quick to repent, quick to come back, quick to reconcile, wanting to be close to Jesus. So as we look at the person of Jesus, what happens is we change, and this text is all about change. It's all about change. Matter of fact, when I was looking at uh, some of my notes of how I've preached this, I've preached from this area of Ephesians a lot. And studying it was really encouraging me because I found even new things. But like, have you ever asked the question, like, how do people change? You know, something that we've been talking about a lot is how will this pandemic change us? Uh, Daniel, uh, one of our staff members, he brought up this, and he's been quoting it several, several times from one of our prayer meetings, that you know, God in His grace, whether violent grace or, or gentle grace, He could be bringing to us exactly what we need to produce change. So that we don't trust in idols anymore, that whatever the idol was could be a good thing from God. It seems feeble in our hands right now, but also just change. And there is change going around in so many ways. I've seen so many memes about people coming out of this 10 pounds lighter or 15 pounds heavier. Some people are getting really creative with workouts. They're just grabbing whatever they can around the house and picking it up. And it's like the ultimate functional workout. Uh, over this break, I've discovered the burpee. I think it is the greatest exercise you can do. I shared that with Wade, and he said it was not. And he said the pistol squat was the greatest exercise you could do. No one knows what the pistol squat is. But when we talk about change, like we are changing all the time. We're not static. You know, we can talk about how change happens physically. You know, either maybe during this time you've been more active and you're tanner now because you actually planted a garden and entertainment is going on a walk. Or maybe you discovered that why canned foods, milk, and certain meats you couldn't find or eggs you couldn't find in the grocery store. Cheese puff and Oreos never ran out. And so you might be walking out very differently. 
How are you walking out spiritually? How are you walking out in your relationships? You know, a really encouraging thing is we've seen people ask questions and we've seen them be on the Bible reading plan. And even in my city group, I've seen people talk more like week to week in person about where they're reading. And I know they're on the Bible reading plan because no one just finds themselves in First and Second Samuel. Change is happening. You know, we've also have been really leery and fearful. This could also be a time where people's addictions and idolatries are are running havoc. That they haven't made the effort to step into community. And they're further out of community. And further out of community as a lone wolf, what happens is idolatries thrive. Addictions thrive. And we've been prayerfully considered, and we are so fearful if you are deeper into addiction of pornography or substance or whatever it might be. And we're asking you to step back toward community in any way possible that we might come under the preaching of God's Word. We might come under the Scripture. We might worship together in the safest way that we can because we want to look for change. You know, last week when we looked at this, we talked about the words unity, patience, humility, grace, long-suffering. And we talked about just how much of a need we have for that for one another right now. And then it ended. You know, how do we change? It's, it's God's people, even in their immaturity. And when Paul used himself to say, we're still in immaturity, he was saying, I'm still in immaturity. And so how do we all come together and grow? God made it like this, the Holy Spirit of God inside of us, bringing us to repentance and then courage that we would speak the truth in love to one another. That's how God's people change. Your change project will not work all by yourself. We're told to confess our sins one to another so that we might be healed. We're told to bear one another's burdens. We're told to do so many things like that. God came not just for individuals. He came to make a people. And that people is called the church. And so when we look at Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, as we keep moving, it's all about how people change. For, for the next two weeks, uh, we're going to be looking in two different ways, so, ways, <laughs> two different ways uh, where we're just going to show this. It talks different levels of change, and it gets really practical. And so what we're going to see is sometimes I organize sermons uh, around questions. You know, it might say like, hey, what is it? What are we talking about? And then it moves to another question where it might say, you know, how does it work? Or then it's like, you know, how do we get it? Or how can we make it work? And that's like 90% of all my sermons right there, that outline. Or sometimes I just use text from the phrase, wordings from the phrase to help build ideas around it. And where the transitions aren't very smooth, I just use cute stories of my kids or hateful stories of my dog, or now we have a pet snake, aloe, thanks to my father-in-law. And I just kind of try to weave those things in. On this, I want to use prepositions. And so since we've been homeschooling, which school's already out, we turned the iPads back in. Homeschooling, it's kind of like we're going to homeschool. And so a preposition is how an object relates to another object. And so a preposition, you could demonstrate it with Jerry the squirrel and his log. And so Jerry the squirrel can be in the log, or he can be on the log, or he can be under the log, or he can be beside the log, or he can be amongst the log. You can get really, really creative with Jerry the squirrel. And so we're going to look at this, our ability to change in three prepositions relating to Jesus. 
Our ability to change before Jesus. That's the first thing we're going to look at. Our ability to change because of Jesus. I looked it up. It is a preposition. And our ability to change with Jesus. And so let's get started in verse 17. In verse 17, it says this. Now this I say. And we just got done with everything building up that the church would speak the truth in love to one another. That is God's plan, that our rough edges would start to rub against each other and we get knocked off. And through repentance and long-suffering, we'd be more Christ-like. And so these transitions, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. The the first thing that we're going to look at is before Jesus. And, And we can say it like it's before Jesus. We are separated from the life of God haunted by futility and powerless to make the real changes that we need. And so there's several things in there. First, separated from the life of God. In verse 17 and 18, it certainly says a lot. But I think what it really gets to is what is different here that's changed in them is they were once separated from the life of God and they are no longer separated. They are no longer shut out from the life of God. Look back in 17 again. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now this is kind of a weird thing to say because he's talking to Gentiles. The Ephesian church was mostly made up of Gentile believers. And they didn't change their nationality. They didn't change their their, their race. They're still Gentiles. And so when he says you must no longer walk as Gentiles, he's not describing just like a people. He's describing a manner of life. He's describing a state that they were in, the way that they existed before they were connected to the life of God. Jump down to verse 18, the middle of it. It says, it says this, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Like this is going to be a really controversial. Like this is going to seem kind of priggish. This is going to sound really stuck up. But when it says this, like they were separated from the life of God, they were saying something incredible. It, it was saying this, he wasn't talking to secular people and saying, hey, you don't believe in God, so of course you're separated from God. He was talking to very spiritual people. People who would have held a polytheistic, like many gods. They would have had many rituals and many places of worship. They would have gathered together to try to connect in some way or to appease the God of the universe or the many gods of the universe. And he says, you were disconnected from all the life of God. You didn't have any connection with the life of God. And so it's one thing to look at a secular people who don't believe in God and say, you're disconnected from that. It's another thing to look at spiritual people and say, because you haven't gone through Jesus, you are completely disconnected from the life of God. And I'm not even talking just like, 
spiritual people who might have like some crazy ideas. I might even be talking about people who identify as Christians, have a lot of religious norms, who go to church, could be sitting next to you in church doing the same Bible reading plan that you're doing, singing the same songs, but for a very different reason, being driven by fear apart from God, not out of a gratefulness that you can now be connected to God because you went through Jesus. Paul says, you no longer walk as the Gentiles to remind them that they were once separated from the life of God and not that it changed their nationality. Despite all the religious beliefs and activities, they were still separated from the life of God. But then they met Jesus. You see, it goes on. There's other words that we got to deal with. We see the word uh, futility. And so in verse 17 and 18, again, you see, they were separated from the life of God before Jesus, and they were haunted by this, this futility. Like the, the text describes their thinking and understanding as futile and darkened. Like look at verse 17 in the middle. It says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We did that already. And it says, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Like those first two words we want to deal with. Futility. Futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding. That's pretty harsh. Like, like most people would say, like, wow, Paul. I mean, come on, like that. Surely that's just preacher hyperbole. You're saying these people before Christ that I mean, when you say their, their thinking was futile, like you're saying something pretty strong. Or, or, or you're saying their understanding was darkened, like there were a lot of corners they couldn't see, they couldn't make out. You're saying something pretty strong. And Paul is saying something very strong. And I think if we actually think about it, we agree with him. Like, I think if we actually stop and we think about it, we agree with them. And it's not, that, it's not that people who aren't Christians can't do and don't do great humanitarian things. It's not that they don't devote their lives and the faculties of their lives to help people in meaningful ways. He's just saying if you're not connected to the life of God, ultimately it is futile and you don't see the whole picture. And I think if we actually stop and think about it, we Agree. I mean, if you give your life to relationships, like after all, relationships are, are the spice of life. So many extroverts have been struggling in this time because they can't hug people and be around people. They're like a cell phone that can't pick up a Wi-Fi signal. And so it's just exhausting itself because it needs people. Like so many things about relationships you might live for. But have you thought if you don't believe in a God who has a plan for eternity and there is no eternity. There is no life in God that goes beyond all your relationships. All of them are going to be taken away. Or, or we could talk about accomplishments. Like if there is not a loving God and an eternity with rewards and faithfulness, what will your accomplishments really matter? Like the greatest of us, the greatest of us, the most sacrificial of us, the ones who do the most will be nothing but a blip on the screen of history. It'll go away. Or, or morality. 
Like, think about the idea of morality, like just being a decent person. Live and let live. Try to elevate people. See where injustices are and trying to rectify them. Like, if there is not an eternity and there is not a judgment for what you do in this life and there is not a loving God, what is the basis that you have for doing right? What, what is the basis? I mean, like, small organisms are crushed by bigger organisms and no one cares. Why should it matter if bigger people crush smaller people or bigger nations consume smaller nations? Like, what is the basis? And I think that is wrong, but what is the basis if there is not a loving God and there is not an eternity that waits? When, you know, for, for a Christian... When he says it's ultimately futile if you're not connected to the life of God, it's saying there's a time where it's all going to come. One day the sun will burn out and everything will go away. And then what? So he starts like the biggest problem that they have is they are separated from the life of God. And being separated from the life of God, they are haunted by a futility. And then it goes on and it says this, that they are powerless to change because of a numbness and an enslavement. Look back in verse 18 again. In verses 18 and 19, it tells us that this world leaves us calloused and given over. Verse 18, it says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to this hardness of heart, they have become callous. You see those words? Hardness of heart, calloused. And and then in just a minute, we're going to see this giving themselves up. Like these words, they mean something. You know, these phrases are, are actually really hard to translate, but they're so descriptive about what we actually see in life. Like our understanding remains darkened and we persist in alienation from the life of God because of a hardness and calloused heart and a given overness. And so first, let's deal with hardness and calloused heart. Like first, hardness, like where it says hardness of heart, other translations will actually translate that as a blindness of heart. Like it means callous. The word actually just means callous. And a callous is a place on on your flesh that has been rubbed so often that it starts to lose feeling. It starts to get harder. And to protect itself from being rubbed the wrong way, it sacrifices a delicate feeling. And so your eyes can be calloused and you lose vision. Your fingers can be calloused and you lose feeling. Your heart can become calloused and you lose warmth. He says there's a hardening of heart, a callousing of your heart. You know, it goes on and it says there's a hardness then it says there's a callousing. You know, the, the word for callousing right there, um, the Greek word, when I looked up the translation of it, the very first thing it says, it says to cease to feel pain or grief. That's how it was most used in antiquity. Like this callous nature where I don't want to feel pain or grief any longer. But the problem is if I limit the threshold of how low my feelings can go, I also limit the threshold of how high they can go. 
You can talk to any psychiatrist and they're going to tell you the same thing. The medication that you take to minimize negative feelings will also minimize positive feelings. It narrows you down. And there is a place and a reason for that in a fallen world. Absolutely. But the the nature of this world, it doesn't leave us unscathed. It doesn't leave us from getting embittered and hardened and calloused. And where my life is rubbed again and again and again in self-protection, I start to just numb feelings out. Is that not what you see? There's a reason why we say things like that bitter old man or that bitter old woman. The natural progression of life embitters us. And he says, that's what you were when you weren't connected to the life of God. But it goes on. It actually talks about something darker. In verse 19, it says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Given themselves You know, sensuality is whatever just feels right in the moment. I'm driven by what seems right to me right now. If that doesn't describe our generation, I don't know what does. What seems right to me, I need right now. And if we actually, if parents let their kids do that, no one would get out of middle school. No one. What seems right to me right now. But it goes on. It says, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Greedy to practice every kind of purity is a continual lust for more. It's never enough. So many people think getting married would stop porn addictions. But if you're greedy for sexual pleasure, it won't stop there. Or, Or you thought making this much money... Like if I make this kind of money, I'll be satisfied. But then you find out that there's a lust for more. Or you think if I get this kind of recognition or this kind of promotion, I'm recognized and promoted, then I'll finally be satisfied. But you want more power. It says there is something in us that just desires more and more and more. And our understanding is darkened in how to deal with it. Our thinking is futile. We have to be connected to the life of God. You know, there's a very real way that the sins that we do start to take possession and ownership of us. That the sins that we do, if unrepented from, they start to do us. And the faculty that we give them starts to die. And so listen to this quote. Tim Keller, a pastor and author, he says this. He says, every one of our sinful actions has a suicidal power on the faculties that put that action forth. When you sin with the mind, that sin shrivels the rationality. When you sin with the heart or the emotions, the sin shrivels the emotions. When you sin with the will, that sin destroys and dissolves your willpower and your self-control. Sin is the suicidal action of the self against itself. Sin destroys freedom because sin is an enslaving power. In other words, sin has the powerful effect in which you own freedom, your freedom to want the good, to will the good, to think or understand the good is all being undermined. By sin, you are more and more losing your freedom. Sin undermines your mind. It undermines your emotion. It undermines your will. 
And that's exactly when it says this. They have given themselves over. Apart from the life-giving love of God, we give apart ourselves a little bit more and a little bit more, and it takes more and more ownership. And the sins that we used to do start to do us. It kills our humanity. And so Paul is saying we can't reason our way out because our thinking is futile and darkened. Paul is saying we can't feel our way out because our hearts are numb. He's also saying we can't will our way out because we're enslaved in ways we don't even understand. And so when he says, don't live as you once did as Gentiles, he's not talking about any nationality. He's talking about a way of life that we all live seeking the pleasure of what seems right to us in the moment or what will yield us power or control in our lives in the moment. And we give parts of our faculties and parts of our life again and again and again. And we wonder why we're getting numb and dejected. So we start, first says, before Jesus. He describes what they were. He says, remember what you were. Remember the manner of life that you lived. Christian, it is so good for us to stop and remember. We forget what the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit is like, even when we're not invested. We forget what it does in us. We forget what it feels like to be forgiven. We have a status of sonship that we don't tap into the way we should. We have a status of sonship or daughtership. We don't tap into it like we should. It's still upon us. Created in the image of God and perfected in Christ, it is still upon us and we forget. And so he says, remember, remember what it was like before Jesus, separated from the life of God, haunted by futility and powerless to make the real deep changes that we need. The second thing I want to look at, the second thing I want to look at is because of Jesus. And so look in verse 17. Like, read this with me again. I know we're reading the whole thing again, but read this with again. And I want you to ask the question, what changed? And so it describes a situation. And then I want to ask, what changed? It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. It's, you must change. It goes in, in the futility of their minds with the darkened of their understanding. It's not something that we can just think our way out of. We are hopeless and powerless on the inside to make the change that we need. And then it says, alienated from the life of God. We are shut out from the life-giving source of God. And if we really think about it, we know that everything else is eventually going to end and it's eventually going to go away. And everything else will eventually be futile if there's not a life of God that extends into eternity. Then it goes on, because of the ignorance that is in them, it's unable to see what the real problem is. We have all kinds of ideas, all kinds of bookshelves about self-help, but we don't see what the real problem is. It goes on, due to their hardness of heart, unable to feel rightly, they have become callous <coughs> to every kind of impurity, enslaved to what feels right to me in the moment. I'm enslaved to desires. And then look. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as to the truth 
is in Jesus. That long description, 17 through 19, stops with the word but, but because of Jesus. And so when he's talking to Christians, he's saying, but because of Jesus, you now have clarity and power to connect with the life of God. It changes everything. Like what happened? If we summarize and say, what happened? But Jesus happened. This is not self-help. This is Savior help. The Gentiles changed because of Jesus. This doesn't say you learned a better method of life management. It doesn't say, you know, anything crazy changed you. It doesn't say that you did any kind of like self-learning. It says you learned about a person. What changed them was they were introduced to the person of Jesus Christ and they started to see the person of Jesus and the person of Jesus before them and then animating in them changed them. Like learning about Jesus makes a callous, enslaved heart soft and free. When you see what Jesus did to forgive you, your heart will soften to forgive others. Learning about Jesus brings to light uh, your life and helps you think rightly about what is really important. When you see what he denied himself to do what was right and really important, it makes the things that you're denying yourself seem small. When you really see what Jesus laid down, you can't hoard your possessions. Learning Jesus is what changes us. Like this says, like we need a divine revelation to change. It it takes a lot of things out of our hands and puts something in our hands. Like we need the God of the universe to reveal the person of Jesus. And then we have to deal with that revelation. We have to ask, what am I going to do with Jesus. It's only at this moment that we can choose. Before that, we are numb, calloused, and enslaved. Has Jesus, like just stopping there, has Jesus happened to you? Has God graciously opened your eyes to see the true state of your life and his true beauty? Has there been a moment that you contemplated who Jesus is as revealed in the scriptures? Have you experienced this interception? It can be a single moment or it can be a process. For the Christian, you will have several of these moments where God reveals something in your life or something before you and it moves you to repentance, to change the way you're thinking about it. And then it moves you to commitment that you might follow through. This is the process that's called sanctification. But how it's described here, putting off and putting on. And so look at the text in verse 20. Like I just, where we've been before Jesus, we were alienated from the life of God. We were calloused. We were numbing our lives out. Our thinking was darkened and futile to really change, to connect with God in the way we need to. Because of Jesus, they learned the person of Jesus. Because of Jesus, they're now connected to the life of God. And then the final thing that we want to walk through, and it's going to be quick, with Jesus. With with Jesus, I can put off the old me and put on a new me in the life of God. Like, Look at verse 20. It says this, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him. This is the revelation 
<clears throat> and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self. That's the action which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of, the, uh, of your mind. We want to talk about that phrase. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. With Jesus, I can put off the old me and put on the new me and experience the life of God. This is what becoming a Christian is, is all about. Like put, becoming a Christian happens when I see Jesus and make a decision to put off the old me and to put on the new me that is connecting me to the life of God. And so the first thing, putting off and putting on happens when I see the truth in Jesus. In verse 20, it says, that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Like a lot of people want to call Jesus a good example to follow or a moral teacher, but that's not how the Bible describes Jesus. Like you can believe that, that Jesus is a good example and he taught us to be nice to one another, but you're not pulling that from the scriptures. He certainly taught like to do nice things. He certainly taught a morality, but he taught something much, much more than that. Jesus didn't come to be some sort of example for us. He came, and this is the dawn of scriptures, from all the way over, right after the very first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, their nakedness, their shame was covered by the death of an animal. Thus building the sacrificial system that showed that blood was what covered sin to become Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth, because when he said, I would do it, it was done. See, with Jesus, I can start to put off. But I have to look and see Jesus, the truth in Jesus. Like, do you see the truth of Jesus? And then the other thing, we see this putting off and putting on. And so first, we have to put off and put on. It happens when I see the truth of Jesus. But putting off and putting on happens when I make a decision. Verse 21, it says, you were taught. Now jump down to verse 22. You were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. To, to put off, it, it's a Greek word, a petithimai, and it's used to describe what you would do with dirty clothes. You would put them aside. You would put them off. You know, it, it, it's actually pretty common that you know, this time period, people would talk about putting off like ways of life. And we actually are going to see that. I mean, if you jump down uh, to verse 25 and on, it's going to talk about a manner of life. Like, stop stealing and start working diligently with your hands. Put off stealing and put on diligence and generosity. Or it's going to say, put off like like lying and being deceitful and now put on truth-telling. And so it's going to get there. That'd be very, very common. But this says something that's very, very different. First, it's saying you need to put off your old self. Put off your old self. Then it's going to say be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. But the thing that's so peculiar is it's in the aorist tense. Now, we don't have the aorist tense. The English language does not have an aorist tense. It, it, most languages don't have an aorist tense. But in Greek, they had the aorist tense was a past verb. 
But it wasn't just a simple past verb. It was a past verb that has a continual effect in the present. And so this says that there is a moment when you make a decision to put off that way of life, to put something else on. There's a lot of little decisions that follow that. But there is a moment where you put off the old manner of life and you say, I'm going to put on Jesus. And so a lot of us, like, it's hard to figure out when that moment was. It's a little bit like, like getting married. Like when you get married, you make some pretty incredible promises that you don't have any idea of what you're really saying. But there is a moment that you gather together, you repeat some words or write your own vows if you're really, really brave. You repeat some words and then you take pictures and then you sign a paper and you are married. But you don't even understand what you're in yet. You have to put marriage on daily as you learn one another and as you learn what it means to actually be married. And this is what a relationship with God is like. There's a moment that you decide to put off. And sometimes that decision happens when you don't know it really happened, but you start to realize later that it happened. And so it says, put off an old manner of life. And it says, put on by the renewing of the spirit of your mind to put on the new self. The word to put on, it's also an heirs tense, which means it happened all at once, but there's a continued effect that's still going on today, and there's still a putting on that's happening. If you put off and you put on, you're still putting off and you're still putting on as the spirit of your mind is changing. The text is saying this, what makes you a Christian is putting on Jesus. At some point, you have to have a moment of clarity of how you're living and you have to see Jesus and consider the promises and evidence for Jesus and make a decision to be a Christian. This can be a single moment or this can be a moment that's over a period of time where you say this, I know I didn't care anything about the reality of God in my life. I didn't care anything about what Jesus thought about my life here But something happened in this season. I started to get around Christians. I started to read the scriptures. I started to pray and ask God things about my life. I started to come to worship. And then I started wanting to do those things. And now I care about what Jesus thinks about my life. And you may not know the exact moment, or you might look at several different moments of this putting off and putting on, but there can be a moment, or it can be in a season, but there can be a certainty that I have put off, and the renewing of my mind is showing how fast those things are practically shedding off me, even though there's still things that I struggle with. But there's a very important order here. You see, we we will get to verses 25 to 32 where it'll say put off falsehood and put on truth. Put off stealing and put on generosity. But before you get there, before you get to verses 25 to 32, which we'll do next week, we have to do verses 22 through 24. We have to have this moment where I say, I see Jesus for who he is. And I choose to put on Jesus. I see a futility of the way my life is or was. And I choose to put on Jesus. I think I was a Christian long before the summer after my senior year. 
But the summer after my senior year in high school, I found myself at a, at a summer camp and I felt like I was being really manipulated. In our cabin devotionals, uh, we did that over Joshua 7. And in Joshua 7, the Hebrew people led by Joshua miraculously defeated the walled city of Jericho. Not by, not by fighting, but by following. They walked around the city as God commanded them to do, and the wall simply crumbled to the ground. God told them to devote everything to destruction in the city, to keep nothing for themselves. They, he didn't want to build in them an idea of, of conquest. He said, listen, this is to bring you into a land that I promised you. And so keep nothing for yourselves. It's all for me. And everyone did that except one man named Achan. And so as they went to the other cities to try to conquer them, they started to lose. And God said, hey, there is sin in the camp. And so through a process, they determined that it was Achan and he had kept, he had buried some treasure and he kept some things for himself. And they uncovered the sin. And then what Joshua did was he resurrected, he, he rose up an Ebenezer, a big stone to remind people that sin in the camp was dangerous for all people. Sin in your life was dangerous. And then my youth director, he gave us all rocks and he said, this is your sin. Will you throw it at Jesus? And I was so ticked off. Yeah, I felt like everybody was like, oh, take my sin, and just kind of throwing it. And I was like, I'll keep my sin. And I remember I put it in my pocket, and I walked outside, and I was under a pavilion all by myself, which was a really scary place for me to be at this time, to be alone with myself. And I actually started to think about the reality of my sin. I actually started to think about like, what that rock represented and what it was yielding in my life. I started to actually think about the futility of my goals and what they were doing. And they all of a sudden seemed very thin and shallow and they weren't very satisfying. In a moment that so many of my goals had been accomplished, I had never felt lonelier. I had never felt with a, a broadness of friends. I had never felt more isolated. Like, I, I contemplated my life. And all of a sudden, hanging onto that stone, onto that sin, seemed, seemed like a bad decision. I don't think that was the first time that I put off or, or put on. But there was, a, there was a momentum change in my life of that putting off and putting on. And since then, there's been many other momentum changes of putting off and putting on. But it's when the Spirit of God, a revelation of who Jesus is and His worth and the promises of God, it's, it's revealed to you. And then you make a choice. And the Scriptures say you can make a choice to put off and to put on. The scriptures talk about when salvation, that revelation precedes reason, meaning God has to reveal something before you can reason about it. See, seeing Jesus happens in verse 20. The action of putting off and putting on happens in verses 22 and 24. Have you considered the claims about Jesus in the Bible? Have you made a decision to put off your old self or to put on a new self? that is alive to the life of God. See, even if you're a Christian right now and you're thinking about how to step out of quarantine back into community, 
there might be something that God's asking you to put off, to lay aside, and then to put on, what would that look like? Let me pray for us. Jesus, it's only possible for us to be made new like this because the exact opposite happened to you. Jesus, you were perfect in every way and you laid it aside and you put on weakness so that we could have your glory. Jesus, Philippians 2, it tells us that you put off glory and you put on death so that we could put off our death and we could put on your glory. And Jesus, we take that too lightly and we don't know what that means. And so, Lord, have mercy on us, but give us more. Jesus, thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Free city. I hope to see you soon.